Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, the interlude we became. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, the interlude we became, episode five, The Inherent Folly of Splitting the Party, or that's forking teamwork. It's summer break, and we continue our vacation from Temerant in the Big Apple. This episode, we'll be covering chapters 11 through 13 of The City We Became. Alrighty. Before we get too much further, let's just get the content warning out of the way. While this book is a lot of fun, it features frank discussions of race, gender, and sexuality in contemporary America from the perspective of marginalized communities. It's important stuff, and it's worth learning about. It also uses what famed Premier League broadcaster Arlo White would refer to as fruity language. If you can handle that, we hope you'll give it a listen. As always, we assume that you've read the associated passage, or at least you don't mind spoilers. And naturally, we also want you to be kind to yourselves, one another, and the creators of the worlds we enjoy exploring. Finally, say it with me, we are in no way affiliated with N.K. Jemisin or her publisher Orbit Books. All right, let us begin. So diving into our book discussion here, we start with chapter 11. Yeah, so about that whole teamwork thing. And this really highlights, I think, one of the great challenges of assembling a diverse group. People don't always see eye to eye and they don't always get along and they don't always fit together in ways that make the most sense. They also don't always trust their teammates I could end that sentence there, but trust their teammates to do things the way that they would do it. Trust their teammates to do anything. Trust their teammates to do it right. And part of this is just any group that you're forming together that like organizational psychologists have phases that groups go through where you have the forming stage where everyone is just sort of feeling each other out and there can sometimes be hostility. And then there's norming where people kind of find a groove and things seem to be going in the right direction. And then there's the storming phase where a lot of those underlying tensions that may have been sensed in that first section come to a head and you start to have fights and you start to dig into where those differences are. And then after that stage, you get to performing where Fights get resolved in constructive fashions and people find ways to not just sand down the rough edges, but to actually make use of their strengths and lean into ways that are productive and not just comfortable. And I think what we're seeing here with the Burroughs is they're still in the forming stage. I have a question for you. What is your most catastrophic that never got to the performing stage? Oh, I can think of a few group projects in college. Like one of my ethics bowl teams just didn't work. A couple things like that. I have probably the worst experience with a group project. So for some reason, my high school decided that in order for everyone to graduate, you had to pass a group project in your, what was essentially civics class. I had like a 93% in that class. 
going into the group project. It was in like four or five sections. After the first section was turned in, my grade went from like a 93-ish in that class to an 81-ish in that class. Because while I had a decent friend group, the friends that were in that class with me were the ones that just, I think two of them didn't graduate. Great. And one of them eked it out. Like, our group had to be torn apart by the teachers. The one that eked it out got put into a different group. I got put into a different group full of people I didn't know. They were all very nice, but they were also definitely not my friend group. And, oh my god. Goodness, I, I, I kind of blacked out the last three projects on that. I don't remember them very much. I know I had to go over to one of their houses and I got to meet all of their siblings, like their younger siblings, and we made food for some reason. But I don't remember the rest of it. Sounds like a really productive group project. Yeah, I would say that it is a really, really stupid idea to have high school graduation contingent on a group project of high schoolers. Professionally, I've also been on groups that have gone through these sorts of transformations. And it's not always fun. It can be difficult because oftentimes people are hired separately. Like you don't know how someone's going to work out. They may ace the interview and give every indication that they're going to be a great teammate. And then when you actually mix them together with the unique psychologies of the people that you've already got on your team, it may not work. I've had a couple teammates that have flamed out. It got to the point where we had one teammate that we actively pulled out of rotation because with him explicitly doing nothing, it was less work for everyone else. Right, because you all had to redo all of his work. Yeah. Which is kind of the position that I was put into with my group project, because in order to try to keep it from being like a flaming train wreck, I wound up doing a lot of work for the others. But you don't always know the motivations of the people that you're going to be paired with. There's no way to make someone who is intent on not graduating decide to pull out all the stops for you. And it can be very tricky when you're trying to give people the benefit of the doubt and you're trying to do right by them, even when you don't have any indication that they're doing the same for you. Also, what motivates each person is different. We think that a paycheck motivates people. It can help. A paycheck is necessary in many cases, but it is not sufficient. I would say that the money itself is not what's the motivation. Also, there is diminishing returns of motivation to amount of paycheck. This is true. And I think it kind of looks like a bell curve almost. Like, you don't respect your workers enough to pay them enough to live, you're going to get crap workers. If you start paying them so much that you really have no leverage, I think once you are paying your workers sufficiently that they can make independent decisions and they have agency over their lives, that's when you hit your peak motivation from paycheck. 
every amount that you spend above that point turns into diminishing returns. It's not that they get less motivated, it's just that it doesn't do as much as getting up to that standard. Then what you have to work on is not just the pay rate that you give them, but the amount of work that you give them and the type of work that you give them. Like if your workers don't have work that is engaging to them and all you're giving them is toil, then you're going to have problems and it's not going to be the quantity of work. It's going to be just the quality of it. Not all work is created equal and not all work is even if it constitutes the same amount of effort. I would also say, though, that if you don't pay enough that your worker is able to live without a massive amount of stress on top of them, which may be in the form of two jobs, maybe in the form of having to live in a space that is untenable for most people. If that is having to say no to their family every time that their family says, hey, I need a new pair of shoes. If you're adding stress by squeezing every dollar of profit for yourself rather than paying your workers, and I know this has gotten way off topic, that's also not motivation. It's just a ball and chain. No arguments with any of that. I think we've hit the nail on the head there. But let's talk a little bit about the specific interpersonal dynamics that we see with our burrows here. We've got four out of five in the room together for the first time. So we've got Bronca, we've got Brooklyn, we've got Manhattan and Queens. So immediately we start to see conflict between Bronca and Brooklyn. I think it's because they're so similar. Yeah. These are both very independent women who have made it for themselves creatively, but they've taken different paths. Brooklyn seems to have taken the path that most people would consider, quote, selling out. She's become a politician. She's amassed influence for herself, whereas Bronca has been content to stay predominantly in the creative side even as she is taking on more administrative work. I would say that I identify more with Bronca, where my motivation is not profit. My motivation is the ability to have agency over my own creativity. And you can see how she chafes at all the administrative work. And that she has the moral fortitude, I guess, to say no when presented with a lot of money to do something that she does not want to do. I get the sense that Brooklyn has become a lot more comfortable with the levers of administrative power. She has had to learn how to understand them and use them effectively to protect her legacy, to protect her family. And she's done so. And I think Bronca kind of resents that. I think Bronca may resent the success part, like the quote success, where by making the choices that Bronca has made, she is not as widely known. Well, all of Bronca's choices have been in the service of artistic integrity. There are probably other choices that she could have made that respected that, but were more effective. And maybe more profitable. 
Exactly. We also see here that Bronca has a long memory. She remembers every slight, real or perceived, and does not let them go, no matter how many years in the past they may have been. I don't think I really have that part of Bronca's personality, but my goodness, do I have a friend that I have been friends with for 30 years who I don't think listens to this, and if she does, sorry, but is like that. Every time that she talks about anything, even if she had fun, the thing you walk away from knowing about the spectacular Europe trip or the wonderful concert or her whatever you want to put in there that has been something that most people don't get the privilege of doing is that at one point or another, there was misery. Well, and it also flows into how she talks about the people in her life. She almost never talks about how much she cares about them or what they do for her. It is always how they inconvenience her. Exactly. And it makes it hard to want to have conversations with her. Oh, yeah. I know that I am probably on the receiving end of many of these grudges as well. All I have to say is she can like a person and make it seem like when she's talking about them that she hates them. And I think that the same kind of deal is happening a little bit with Bronco with everything that she remembers. She remembers the bad things that happened more than the good things. As a person who worked customer service, this happens a lot to customer service people. This happens a lot in general, but a lot to customer service people. The absolute worst person that you interact with that day will be the only person you remember from that day. I also think that psychologically, just in general, it's a lot easier for people to define other human beings by their worst actions. Those are the things that stand out. How has this person hurt me? What have they done to me? And then that's all we think about when we consider them. And it really isn't fair to define someone by their worst day. It takes intentionality to consider someone as a whole person. I'm not saying that I'm perfect at this or anything like it. It's something that I have to work at and I have to actually give myself time to get to. I think it's also very wise here that Bronca says, hey, I need space. I need some me time. It's especially wise on the part of Venitza to help bring this out, to help actually give Bronca the space to detox a little bit and really have that time to breathe and look a little closer at someone else. I think in the case of customer service agents or really anyone in the service industry, whether that is external customer or internal customer, you know, nobody calls your service provider just to say hi. Nobody calls their service provider just to tell them they're doing a great job. Or to say thank you. It's always, I have this problem, fix it. They're only ever calling because something isn't working. And that's as it should be. I'm not saying that this is in any way broken, but you have to always keep that in mind. That person that you're always fixing things for may not actually have as many 
problems in their life as you assume because you're only ever seeing them when they're having problems. You don't necessarily have a representative view of what their life is normally like. You're only seeing it when it's a wreck. And it's really easy to think that all that you see is all that exists. So it really does take some effort, not just to imagine them more complexly, but to give them space to tell you about their life. And you have to work to get to that point and remind yourself that your perception of them is not all that there is and that your experience of them is not representative of their entire life. So I really like that we had that little break there. We also see how Bronca interacts with Manny. Manny puts Bronca on edge because he is very slick. He's charming and Bronca does not trust charm. Well, as a person who has lived with someone who has sociopathic tendencies, one of the hallmarks of personality disorders is this ability to be charming and manipulative because the people who have these mental disorders don't necessarily feel things the way that other people do and they do a mimicry of what they see other people acting like that gets them places. And so I can definitely see how Bronco would see this personality in front of her as manipulative and untrustworthy and slimy. Well, and the thing that we come to understand about Manny is that there is a duality to him. The charm and the charismatic stuff that he has, it's genuine. We know that Manny can be compassionate. We know that he can be caring. When he first arrived in New York, his first experiences of the city, the things that made him feel love, were these moments of genuine compassion between strangers. We know that he's capable of this. We also know that he is someone who is always running the numbers. He is always making calculations to see what he needs to do to accomplish his goals. We also know that he is willing to make a hard call and he will sacrifice someone else to achieve his ends if he thinks that that's what's necessary. We also know that he tends to appear to be whoever he needs to be. He's a bit of a mirror like that, which can be dangerous. He's a social chameleon. That can be both good and bad. I know I've had to be that way before. A lot of people who grew up in abusive households have to constantly calculate the safest route through life. The way that will ingratiate you or get you ignored or any number of other reactions to you that aren't anger or rage or negative to protect yourself. It also seems to me like Manny is someone who has had to learn how to code switch. That's exactly what a lot of people do that are used to having to hide their true personality, sometimes to the point where they don't know what their true personality actually is. Which is a large part of Manny's struggle right now. He's amnesiac, partly by choice, 
and also partly just as a result of who he is. He's this weird melting pot. And it's also something that speaks to, I think, the tension between assimilation and syncretism. He's descended from the Dutch traders who essentially tricked a band of Lenape Indians into giving up the island of Manhattan, which belonged to several different groups, and claimed it for their own. And he's also descended from that same group. And he's descended from everyone else who has appeared in New York City to make a name for themselves, to build a life. It can be complicated. Identities are complicated, and Manny's is no exception. I also love the bit where Venitza comes in and helps to remind Bronca of just what it is that she loves about this city. Venitza has the luxury of being something of an outsider. She's from Jersey City, so she has the ability to be close enough to really experience the city and everything that it is, while also having a little bit of remove to be able to see some of the absurdities to it. And I think some of these are very tranchant. So she points out to Bronca that pretty much everyone in New York hates New York. Like it's too hot in the summer, it's too cold in the winter, it's humid and muggy, it stinks, it's crowded, the infrastructure's crumbling, everything's a little dysfunctional. I mean, and how could it not be with the amount of complexity required to run a city with that kind of population density? It's messy. It's not always the way you want it to be. But at the same time, she says, you know, you could leave if you really wanted to. And some people do. But most people just stick around hating New York. I would say, though, that high rent and high cost of living, even if you're very well off, can trap you in a place because it's nearly impossible to get ahead Especially right now, when rents are being risen so much that it's forcing many people to just be homeless. It takes money to get the heck away from places. And it's stressful and hard. And I hate the, why don't you just up and move attitude. If you don't like it here, you could always just move. No, you can't. You really can't. But you can do your best to make a change for the positive. Well, and Venita also points out that one of the reasons that people stick around in New York in particular is because of all of those things that make it so maddening sometimes. The rampant chaos and disorganization with that many people around you are exposed to things that you would never see anywhere else. You know, you meet random people at block parties that change your life. You build these found family communities within your neighborhoods. You can experience artistic expressions that wouldn't have an outlet anywhere else. You get to have fusion cuisine like Vietnamese pierogies, which sound amazing, by the way, <laughs> that no one would think of but make perfect sense. You have these opportunities and they make you love it. And that's what she's really getting at. And it's that that helps give Bronca that space 
to realize that, yes, she does actually care about this entire city and not just her borough. That, yeah, she's not going to go it alone. And that, yeah, this is actually worth fighting to preserve. And also she realizes maybe she needs to have some food because just as she's been judging everybody on their worst traits, she's also been in a position where they're not seeing any of her good traits either. Oh my goodness, is this so real? So I know that we've said it before, and so I'm going to be truncated on it. But when I get past that point of I'm hungry to the point of hangry, my anxiety comes out. And when you get past that point of I already knew I was hungry like an hour ago, and now I definitely needed to eat an hour ago, you get like this weird shutdown. I get lethargic. Yeah. So I call it derpy because... It's like watching someone try to think through molasses. Well, and I also get a little bit irritable and you get very irritable. I admit that. And in this case, we also see that Bronca hasn't had anything to eat, but just like a half of a donut. Oh, and that's never the best option. Oh, yeah. She's having a sugar crash. Like nobody's at their best when that's all you've had over the course of a day. And there's a lot of stress going on. And so I do love that their recovery food of choice is pho, which is just so nourishing. It is so restorative. You have a good bowl of pho with everything. Oh, man. Okay, so we have a running understanding that cold, wet, rainy days are the best for pho. But neither one of us feels terribly comfortable in a restaurant situation yet and we have not had pho in two years more than two years because of all the things we love to eat pho is just terrible for ordering out because it's just it doesn't travel well it's like tons of liquid and you have to kind of build it back up yourself and i always feel bad about the idea of having a delivery person have just like buckets of pho broth in their car so I'm not going to be that person and I'm sure we could do order out and go pick it up but again I don't really want a ton of pho broth in our car either that and ramen like good ramen like those two things I miss them yeah me too we're gonna have to find a place that'll let us eat them outside yeah, I think I could stand in the fall and winter just bundling up in all of my jackets and going outside with frozen hands and a bowl of ramen or pho in my face with like maybe a roof and open air, maybe. I don't think that exists anywhere nearby. <laughs> oh, well, we get to be jealous of characters in the book. Yeah. But it is amazing just how much having a good meal with someone can help you to see them a little better. I think food is also one of those unifying things, right? Having a good meal with other people helps connect us. Yeah, everyone has their own particular tastes. But I think inviting people over and just having a pizza party or making adult mac and cheese for a group of people 
you know, I say adult mac and cheese and no one understands that reference, but... It sounds pornographic. It does, except what I mean is it has vegetables in it. I think also we see some other examples of this too. Initially, everyone is a little skeptical of Vinitza's place there because she's not a burrow, at least as far as they can tell. But as soon as she provides snacks, all questions are out the window. She's one of them. Right. I think that that's great. I think when you do something for other people, it automatically makes the other people feel more positive towards you. Oh, it's absolutely true. I know that there are certain people that professionally I have friction with. And every now and then we will do things for one another. Like we'll get food for one another just to have a little bit of extra esprit de corps. And it makes a difference in how we perceive one another. It's not like our professional disagreements go away, but they take on a different level of importance in how we view that other person. And it also means that it's a little easier to talk with them about those professional disagreements. It's a lot easier to maintain civility and be productive in how you see those things. And on top of that, you get your blood sugar back. Oh, yeah. Which can go a long way to assuaging some of those friction points. I also think it's pretty notable here how with this extra time and extra nourishment, Bronca is able to recognize that these other burrows have been kind of just making it up as they go along. They're doing the best they can with what they know, and what they know isn't a lot. Right. It's like she got the majority of the info dump, and they just got swept along as kind of the side characters. They're just making it up as they go. They're trying to figure it out, and sometimes they hit on something that works well enough, but isn't maybe the most optimal way. I would say that this is a lot like... Trying to learn something off the internet. I have a really good example. One of the things on It's Okay to Be Smart that just came out was a video about the Dunning-Kruger effect. But what was interesting to me about this video was that Joe, the host, watches a lot of videos online about how to land a plane. Like he watches pilots landing planes. He watches flight simulators of people landing planes all of this stuff. He has never once touched the controls of an airplane or a flight simulator, not just a game version. And so he went to a flight simulator to try his hand at landing a plane. Short version of the story is he killed a bunch of virtual people multiple times. When it was all flight guidance software doing most of the work, he broke the landing gear. But when it was take that away incrementally, he skidded and probably made a fire and then just flat out missed the runway. <laughs> like these are things where you look at them and you go, OK, I think I understand all of this based on watching other people having done it. But the moment that you're supposed to do it, you're like, of course I know what I'm doing. Nope. <laughs> I'm going to say this here. Nobody is immune from the Dunning-Kruger effect. Absolutely. 
I am not immune to it. You are not immune to it. Every human being is susceptible to it. I think where this comes down to is at what point do you think you know enough where you can just run with something and then you become overconfident? Because I think both of us are not at the beginning stage. We understand at the beginning that we don't know what we don't know. But I think that that knowledge of like, I really don't know what I'm doing, I think gets pushed out so that when we have a little bit of expertise, we think we know more than we do. In this case, what I'm seeing is it's like when you're presented with a very complex piece of software. You know, it, it has a lot of tools and buttons and functions and menus. And you know what your objective is, what you're trying to accomplish. And through a little bit of trial and error and a whole bunch of hunting around online, you maybe find a way to get what you're trying to do mostly. And it works well enough that you don't go any deeper. And so you develop this workflow around this and you get comfortable with it and you feel like, yeah, you know what you're doing. And then you meet someone who actually has had training in this software and they're able to show you, oh, you know, there's a much easier way to do this if you go here and do this. And they will be able to show you the best practices. So then instead of just building together something that's kind of hacked together and just suboptimal, but it works, like you've been used to being able to get results doing it. And then you see someone who actually knows what they're doing and it changes things dramatically. And your own ability, once you actually figure out how to do that, you grow so much as well. I feel like I'm still in the I had to figure it out for myself version of Adobe Audition, which is what I use to edit, because I know that there has to be a way to pull an instance of our opening theme and our ending theme and just point the computer at those to put into our final episodes. But I have a lot of episodes with duplicated files of those two themes. Luckily, they're kind of small, but they are still WAV files that are not tiny. And I've looked it up online. I cannot find anything that tells me how to do what I think ought to be able to be done. But I also don't have the patience to go through an entire, this is how you actually use Audition. And it's in this moment that Bronca gets a little bit more grace for her fellow Burroughs. They haven't had training. They've been making it up as they go along. Of course, they're not doing things in the most efficient way. And they've made decisions that she would never make. I think once you allow yourself the opportunity to understand another person, to empathize with another person's experience, or to even ask about their experience rather than assuming that they know all the things that you do, is when you can start maybe helping them fill in those gaps and you become more graceful to them and they become more open to listening to your advice. Absolutely. So not only does this help Bronca to appreciate Manhattan, it also helps her to understand just what Brooklyn's been going through. Brooklyn's taxed herself in ways that none of them are really equipped to handle. And by all rights, she should be passed out comatose. Sometimes doing things by instinct 
also can lead to inefficiencies, shall we say. This also helps Bronca to appreciate that maybe it's not just Brooklyn being a jerk. Maybe it's because Brooklyn is just absolutely worn out. I mean, Bronca's pretty worn out herself. And it's not that they forgot about the Bronx. It's literally they tried to contact her and Bronca didn't get the message. That is true. She does have a little bit of a chip on her shoulder from a misunderstanding. She, like Staten Island, thinks that the other boroughs have been ignoring her. She feels like they went off on their own adventure without her. But in reality, and this is something that actually happens a lot, a lot of people assume the worst when the reality is actually more along the keep it simple stupid. They tried calling the art center. Their voicemail is full of just hate messages that no one wants to listen to. Of course, if you're not answering your phone because you just don't want vitriol and bile to be spewed at you, and you aren't checking your voicemail, and you haven't gone home to check your voicemail there, or to get phone calls there, how in the ever-loving heck are you supposed to be contacted? Same thing with the emails. Like, their inboxes are being spammed with just... Ugh. How else were Brooklyn and Manny and Pedmini supposed to actually get a hold of Bronca? And it's even worse for Staten Island, because it's... A choice between going like one of the other directions is not like you can split yourself and splitting the party is not a good idea. That's the rule one of D&D and it's also the first rule that gets ignored. And this also brings us to our two outsiders, Mr. Hong and Sao Paulo. Our two other cities. I kind of like Hong Kong. He's absolutely no bullshit. Like... He doesn't care what you think about him. He doesn't care if you like him. He doesn't care if you hate him. He is someone who has had to live his life in the shadow of the mainland of China, who's had to establish his own identity to defend his own sovereignty and independence, not just from mainland China, but also from England, which is why he has an unusual accent. It is like this weird blend of a Chinese accent and a British accent. Certain pronunciations are just a little different from what most people might expect. And he's got no patience for people just being jerks to him. All he cares about is accomplishing his goals. And then, of course, we've got Sao Paulo, who is recovering from injuries inflicted by Staten Island. Yeah. And... We also get a sense that Hong Kong, he's got an affection for Sao Paulo that goes beyond just mentor-mentee. There's, I think, some actual love there. And I don't think it's brotherly. No, I don't get that feeling, or even fatherly. I kind of get the sense that they're kind of lovers in a way. In the same way that New York and Sao Paulo are. Even though Hong hates smoking, and he hates Sao Paulo's cigarettes in particular, he smokes one and then blows the smoke into Sao Paulo's face to try and rejuvenate him. Why? Because he loves him and he feels comfortable going through his pockets 
he's able to touch Sao Paulo without feeling that sense of rejection that the other burrows feel when they get close. There is a sense of trust and warmth between the two of them. I also note that, you know, he'll do anything to protect his friend, his lover. And he is understandably feeling a little betrayed. This guy's here to help you guys, and he's hurt because of you. How did you not notice? But you can also definitely see why he rubs people the wrong way. Speaking of unlikable protagonists. So in this exposition dump, we also learn that failed cities only exist in stories because only the universes where they don't exist survive. So, for example, we've got Atlantis only exists in the universes where it's been destroyed, where it sank into the ocean. None of the universes where it survived exist anymore. They just kind of got culled from the timeline. Kind of like the TVA came in and sweeped up and just got rid of all of those branches. It does also create sort of this weird kill or be killed mentality on the part of each universe. We see Padmini realizing, wait, just by existing, she is destroying all of these universes where her city fails. And so everyone that lives in that universe has been destroyed. And it causes a bit of an existential crisis. It's Manhattan who helps Padmini through this, though, when he points out that if they want, they could all just forfeit. They could throw the game if they really wanted to and also doom everyone that they care about. That's not better. It isn't better, but it is what helps get her through it. Oftentimes it's really easy, I think, to fall into sort of the utilitarian paradox where you just start thinking of the number of people without actually thinking about what obligations you have to the people around you. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Or the one. Maybe in a general sense that could be the case, but they have specific obligations to the people in their lives. And... Those can't be just dismissed. So the fact is those other universes will probably be destroyed anyway. Have already been destroyed. The best thing to do is to keep living in such a way that you can honor their sacrifice. So one other thing that I wanted to talk about here is Venitza's Brigadieros that she uses to heal Sao Paulo. So I did a little bit of research on these. So they're basically truffles made with condensed milk and chocolate. And they take their name because, here, let me actually pull up the Wikipedia article. <laughs> and pardon my butchered pronunciation here. So the Brigadeiro is a traditional Brazilian dessert. The origin of the dessert is uncertain, but the most common theory is that it was created by a confectioner from Rio de Janeiro to promote the presidential candidacy of Brigadier Eduardo Gomez. This was in the 1940s, and Gomez was the candidate for the UDN, which is the National Democratic Union of Brazil. They were a right-leaning, I would describe them as neoliberal. They fall into the vein of modern conservatism. And these were commonly made and distributed by women because this was the first presidential election in Brazil when women were allowed to vote. Now, Gomez ended up losing this campaign, and he, of course, contested it because the UDN was also in favor of coup d'etats. So, yeah, not great. But there are a couple interesting things about it. So 
This style of sweet first became common in the 1920s when Nestle started importing condensed milk to Brazil and the rest of South America as well. Prior to that, you know, anything would have had to be made using fresh milk, which was a lot harder to do in areas with spotty refrigeration. So this meant that you could get milk supplies and dairy out to more far-flung regions to people with less secure power and who were relying on less reliable refrigeration techniques. So it's just an interesting little bit of how a lot of the things we take for granted as being historical aren't really all that old. I mean, this is something that's within the past hundred years and it's now considered traditional. It is striking though that you say that knowing that the country we live in was founded 250 years ago-ish. So anything that is traditionally of the United States, like the rest of the world is looking at us and going, isn't that cute? Yeah, we are a very young country. And it also gives us a sense of how old Sao Paulo is. Sao Paulo is not very old either, as cities go. He's the youngest of the cities barring New York. That all being said, just to get to the end of this chapter, which I realize we've been talking and talking and talking and talking, and we are still in the first of the three chapters we are discussing. But at the end of the chapter, Hong Kong looks at the four boroughs that are there and explains, oh yeah, you're probably going to be absorbed into the main. As in, sayonara, suckers. That comes as quite a shock, especially to Brooklyn, who has a family. And just kind of whips her head back towards Hong. It's like, wait, excuse me, what? And that's where we leave the chapter. And we can finally move on to chapter 12. Hooray. So next we go to chapter 12. They don't have cities there. This is a two-hander. It's just Ashlyn and the woman in white. It's uncomfortable. It really is. So there's a couple things that we find here. First of all, every gift that Ashlyn's father gives to her is a means of control, such as forcing her to get an associate's degree from the local community college rather than a bachelor's from the school in the city, bribing or blackmailing the local librarian to get Ashlyn an off-the-books job, and then helping her to pay for a car so that he can track her mileage and location. Yeah, I feel like there's a low jack in there somewhere. Quite probably. And the fact that he's checking her mileage every time that she comes home, like that's just an obsessive level of control there. I don't know about you. I don't have time for that shirt. Like, I know that I have a bit of a need for control streak because of my anxieties, but that's a level beyond obsessive. Yeah, well, and it's malicious. Like, this is him trying to control things that don't concern him at all. Like things that cause him no harm. That's an interesting way to think about it, that he feels threatened by the idea that his daughter might grow and learn and have her head filled with things that he didn't put there. Yeah. That she might interact with people who could maybe show her just what a crappy father he's been to her. All of this obsessive and domineering control. It isn't at all about his own safety. It isn't about 
anything other than perpetuating his own control. I'll say that when I lived with someone who was exceedingly controlling and where the two of us argued and fought and not having a discussion and not having like an equal back and forth. I mean, like screaming matches. I thought everyone did that because I'd lived in a household growing up where that was normal. And then my parent, quote, parent, did that with me. And then my first spouse did that with me. I thought it was normal. I thought everyone did that. I thought every single person, every couple put on the nice face when they went out and were real with each other in the now we're going to yell at each other way. Like everyone, when they had arguments, had arguments like that. I know that that's not true anymore, but when that's your only environment that you ever witness, there's nothing telling you that things could be different. And Island is so, so siloed, not just because she's trapped herself on Staten Island, but because her father has limited her options or her perceived options for her. I think this is also a metaphor for the way that the patriarchal forces that control a lot of our world oftentimes triangulate forces against one another. Like you consider why do poor white working class people end up voting for the Republican Party, which is overwhelmingly promoting an agenda that's hostile to them. Who are also made up of people who have no idea what it is like to be poor or working class. And it's often because it's the same sort of triangulation that Ashland's father has done. Island. That Island's father has done. They've been convinced that the outside world is hostile to them, that people who look different from them are hostile to them, that, you know, even though things may be bad, this is so much better than the alternative. Right. The scary unknown could not possibly be a better thing, which I think is what traps a lot of people in abusive spaces. I didn't realize how much better things could be until I left. And even though the first year after I left was not what I would consider financially prosperous, and it took an emotional toll on me, the last 13 years have been immensely, immensely better. Speaking purely selfishly here, I'm really glad that I could be a part of that. And I'm also really glad that by the time you and I got together, you had kind of figured out that we could have disagreements in a constructive fashion. Sort of. I mean, I did go to years of therapy while we were together. I have definitely worked on myself. I had a lot of emotional challenges, shall we say, around my expectations of what a relationship was like because my previous one-on-one -on -one relationships with people conditioned me to believe that eventually it would just devolve back into that. 
and you're not like that. And I would hazard a guess that most people aren't. Well, thank you. But I know I kept mentioning things like, wow, I didn't know that this wasn't normal, or I didn't know that people could react the way that you're reacting. Yeah, I do remember that there are a lot of times where, you know, like it would be after some fairly mundane thing where you wanted to do one thing, I had proposed an alternative thing, you made your case and I said, okay, sure, sounds good, let's do it. And then you were shocked. And then you would say, well, my ex was so much terrible, you are so much better than him. And I always felt a little weirded out by that because... Yeah, sure, but this is a really low bar to clear, you know? <laughs> and you've always deserved so much better than how you'd been treated. And I think that that's true for everyone who's treated poorly. Absolutely. If you are being treated poorly, you know that you're being treated poorly somewhere in your head. You deserve better. You don't deserve to be treated that way. I know it's scary, but there are ways to... Leave those situations. Anyway, back on to the fictional abuse victim. So, yeah, back to Island. The other thing we learn is that the woman in white is herself something of an outsider. I think there is a little bit of kinship between the two of them. The woman in white is different from prior iterations of the enemy. I'd also say, though, that there is some manufactured kinship because I believe that the woman in white is manipulating herself and Island's perception of her to make it so that Island is more likely to trust her. I think there's definitely some of that. I also do get the sense, though, that we have seen things that maybe we're not supposed to have seen, where the woman is in conflict with her superiors, her creators, because she's different from prior iterations that have attacked other cities. In other cities, the agents of the enemy have essentially just gone full kaiju smash on everything. Whereas with the case of the woman in white, she is far more subtle. I think she's taking more of that psychological horror element in terms of her character arc. I think she's doing things to cause psychic pain more than just physical pain. And part of how she does it is by offering comfort. She understands how people think and what drives them. So what she's offering to Island in this case is comfort. Oh, you can just go to the places you're comfortable, interact with the people you're comfortable with, and you don't have to challenge yourself. You can go to the Starbucks and the bathroom will be clean and you'll have a comfy seat with inoffensive coffee house quote rock that you can listen to and it'll be fine. And it'll be so expensive that regular folk won't be able to be there. It'll just be comfortable rich people. You know, all of these things that offer comfort and convenience at the expense of actual people. So another thing that... I caught here is Island is susceptible to European culture's conflation of dark with threatening. This is one of those things that isn't just about race, but it carries over into race. 
think of things like in fantasy where they talk about a dark lord or the forces of darkness or you know anything like that as a negative thing the black king the black queen the drow yeah the dark elves and they're all presented as evil or scary or hostile and this way of thinking even though it isn't specifically about race ends up coloring the way people think about skin color like if you've always been conditioned to think that dark equals bad or scary and that's the descriptor that you've used for pretty much all of these negative ideas and then carving up in your head to say except for when we talk about skin color most people don't actually do that right and talking again about being conditioned generally speaking when describing people in books most white authors do not discuss the color of the skin of the white person but do discuss the color of the skin of the darker skinned people if it's something that is off book of what we expect normal to be everyone is assumed white unless proven otherwise everyone is assumed straight cis unless proven otherwise like you have to call out the differences but you don't have to call out the normal yeah there are a lot of assumed defaults that are not nearly as default as people think they are it's something that's ingrained in cultural and linguistic traditions that go back thousands of years and we oftentimes don't even think about them very critically I think the only time that we see white authors kind of call out that, oh, this character is white, is if the country that they come from is predominantly not. Like South Africa, we assume Africa because we assume monolith and we assume that this continent that is massive and more massive than maps would even let you believe is just full of dark-skinned people and that there are no white people there. Well, and even within all of that, so let's just talk about people who have skin that is roughly the same color. Even within that, there are thousands and thousands of linguistic and cultural and religious traditions that date back, again, thousands of years. Like the human population of Africa has a longer history than anywhere else in the world. And it encompasses a wide array of very diverse cultures. They're not monoliths at all. They're diverse, they're complicated. They have a very complicated relationship with one another oftentimes. And the things that make it seem as simple as it seems on paper usually have to do with the way colonial powers decided to draw up a map. And the way that we flatten complexities when we don't interact with them. Exactly. Another thing that I thought was interesting here is we get another explicit callback to Lovecraft with the woman asking Island if she's read any Lovecraft. And the work that Island specifically references is, is the Red Hook Horror, which was basically H.P. Lovecraft railing against Brooklyn because there were criminals and foreigners and foreign criminals. H.P. Lovecraft, massive racist. And yeah, 
what we really get here is that the woman's ideology is really an embodiment of Lovecraftian philosophy. Cities, as in dense urban environments, are inimical to life. They are hostile to people. And as far as the woman is concerned, everything should just be bland, organic suburbia, where you have tree-lined streets filled with people who look like you. And you don't have to interact with anybody you don't want to. People that look like you, as long as what you look like is um, you. Yes. I'm not even going to say us because my hair is magenta and I don't think that that fits in. I also have a really large tattoo on my left arm. I also don't think that that works regardless of what it is. Now, as far as the woman is concerned, she just wants subdivisions in the classroom halls, subdivisions in the shopping malls, subdivisions, be cool or be cast out. You're adorable. And I also know that every time that we watch a video on how to play guitar well and how to do down and up strums comes up and they say subdivisions, that is all you can think of. Look, <laughs> I make no apology for my love of Rush. Suffice it to say, most of what the interaction with the enemy and island winds up being is very simplistic, but very manipulative. And it's very indicative of the fact that Island represents kind of that monolith, that kind of insular, controlled, easily manipulated, simplistic view of things. Where, honestly, I think that one of the reasons that this book is so well done is because when you get to the more complicated, more historical, more nuanced characters, you get more nuanced storytelling. And when you are focused in on Island and the enemy, you can take a bird's eye view and see how Island is being manipulated and how easy it is to do that when your worldview is so small. Yeah. Island has been conditioned all her life to be susceptible to this sort of temptation. And it's powerful, right? We've seen it in our own political discourse across, well, we've already talked about it a bit, but yeah, Island in particular has been primed for it. So yeah, I think all of this occurs even as Island is aware that the woman has no actual sympathy towards her, that the woman actually was the one who sent Connell there. I do want to make a note about Lovecraft. We have some of his works. We own a book of his collected works. And I think it's okay to own and read problematic things as long as you're willing to interrogate those problematic things. Yeah, it's okay to enjoy problematic media. You just have to be willing to admit that it's problematic. Also, like, a lot of things, if you pick them up that are more recent, that are either based off of Lovecraftian things, take a more cynical and or satirical view of the material that it's drawing from. It's kind of like the boys in that it's taking a look at all of these heinous things and putting a lampshade on them in the hopes that most or all people will understand that it's satire and that it is not glorifying the 
apparent attitudes of its characters. And the people that scare me the most in this world are the people that cannot see that. Yeah. Like, I'll also say that these sorts of books, like The City We Became or Lovecraft Country is another that sort of follows in this tradition of using Lovecraftian tropes to deconstruct Lovecraft. They are made with, I think, an understanding of the things that make Lovecraftian work and Lovecraftian horror in particularly so appealing to a lot of people. And then using that to really interrogate a lot of the cultural assumptions that underlie those. It's not that H.P. Lovecraft is a terrible writer and you should never read him. It's that you should understand that he was more than just a product of his time. He was considered extreme in his racial hostility, even for the 1920s. But understand the context of all of that. Understand that, you know, when he would talk about people who were other than white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, he was in the far extreme there. He was absolutely not reflecting mainline views. He was not reflecting anything approaching humane views. These were not the views of someone who had a good grasp on society because he didn't understand anyone who was different from him and he was afraid of that. But I do think we pretty much exhausted chapter 12 and can move on to chapter 13. Agreed. So now we move on to Beaux-Arts. Benches. I had to look up how to pronounce that. <laughs> I was a little bit worried if it was going to be like the traditional French pronunciation or if it would be a more Americanized one, but it's Beaux-Arts. <laughs> so this picks up with our conversation with Hong Kong and the avatars are shocked when he's saying, oh yeah, the avatar is probably going to eat you. Devour, there's a different connotation, especially for Manhattan. Wait, uh. <laughs> I also have to say that it's a fun little play on that whole idea of that city will chew you up and spit you out. <laughs> that city's going to eat you alive. Oh, dear. Regardless, Brooklyn's first thought is, oh, no, you aren't taking me away from my family. And everyone else is just kind of like, did he just say what we thought? Brooklyn's a little quicker on the uptake than the others. <laughs> yeah. I also love that Hong Kong is just really matter of fact about all of this. He's like, yeah, maybe. That's just what's happened every other time that we've had boroughs. Their example, of course, being London, which is interesting. When you think about boroughs and regionalism, one of the things that's useful for mapping is professional sports, particularly in soccer. Think to yourself, there is no London team. There is not a team that's just London. This might be a shock to any of our listeners from the United States. Right. All of the soccer teams in London are hyper-regionalized. You have teams from Tottenham and West Ham and Chelsea and Fulham and Crystal Palace and Watford. <laughs> but you have all of these teams that represent neighborhoods, really, just small little boroughs that are fairly insular in their own ways that represent unique cultures. Oh yeah, and then there's Woolwich, but I have my feelings about them. Okay. Anyway, the thing I love here is Hong's like, I don't know, this is just what's happened in the past. It's not predictive. 
All I can tell you is what we've seen before. Maybe everything will be great. As though that's supposed to make them feel better. But Hong doesn't care about making them feel better. <laughs> that's part of what I like about him. Yeah, I don't know. He's kind of likable despite, and that's about all I've got for you. <laughs> He's got a bit of a Ron Swanson vibe to him. Okay, I'll agree with you on that one. He's just a straight shooter. He tells it like he sees it. He doesn't really care about making you feel good about it. So there's a couple themes that I picked up on here. One thing is that we see that the Murda Burger, which is a local burger shop, is being demolished to make way for luxury condominiums and mixed-use retail. And that is almost always code for gentrification. It means that that lease is not going to be extended back to Murder Burger. That lease is going to be extended to Zara or to maybe a Target that has apartments above it. And not only that, like you could say, oh, well, it's just going to be this one thing. But the problem with that is that even in a neighborhood where you have lower income, but everybody owns the properties that they live in, if you come in and you just put in a whole bunch of expensive boutique retailers, what that does is raise the property values of everybody living there and thereby raising their property taxes. And once those property taxes become too expensive for the people who own the property and have lived in those buildings and homes for generations sometimes, they can no longer afford to live in the homes they own. And they get priced out. That's what makes gentrification so insidious. There is a fun movie on Netflix called Vampires vs. the Bronx, which is about vampire real estate barons basically taking over buildings in the Bronx and pricing out the people who live there slowly but surely and taking it all over. And it kind of hints at some of this. It's a lot of fun. I probably will never watch that. You probably won't, but it is fun. We also discover a little bit about the Better New York Foundation, that it is a child corporation, essentially, of TMW, and that stands for Total Multiversal War. Little on the nose, don't you think? Well, if the shoe fits, right? I mean, I'd like to say, hasn't anyone bothered to look at what this thing is called? And then realizing that if anyone does care what the initials are for, they probably look at the word multiversal and nope out. Honestly, I would not be shocked to discover, for instance, a game company called Total Multiversal War. No, I, I mean, I worked in a building that was taken over after I was there by a company called Wargaming. And... One of the things that's interesting here is this concept of total war. Total war is a relatively recent historical phenomenon. Prior to about the 1800s, war was a discrete thing that was waged on specific battlefields between specific forces, where a distinction was made between combatants and non-combatants. Total war is something that has a different objective. It is all about pure conquest. Total War does not make a distinction between civilians and combatants, and it does not make a distinction between military targets and civilian targets. 
This would be, for instance, in the westward expansion where white settlers and the U.S. Army in particular waged an all-out war on the indigenous populations, where they went after women and children, not just the warriors, and they were all about taking total control of everything. Other examples include pretty much every war in contemporary history. World War I and World War II in particular made no distinction. Total war has been the default for most wars in our living memory. And it's a tragedy. And it's also, in this case, this homogeneity and gentrification is a form of total war because it is hitting people where they live. It is trying to destroy people's homes and livelihoods. Really, this is all corporatism. Corporatism is this force that is draining the lifeblood of these communities. And it infects the American political and media structure as a way to kill off nascent cities. So, for instance, the American healthcare system, compounded by the political response to Katrina, was essentially what prevented New Orleans from being born because their avatar got shot in a random encounter. And then, because the healthcare system in the United States was so haphazard, they couldn't save her. The system of your ability to have health care being intrinsically tied to your ability to work and work for a place that provides insurance for health care and your ability to afford to not only pay for your portion of your insurance and having your insurance be worth a damn instead of just, hey, I am catastrophically hurt. Someone should help me. Where medical bankruptcy is pretty much a death sentence, because that also means you can't be insured. Right. And even if you are insured, something as simple as just an ambulance ride to the hospital is enough to bankrupt most families. Right. So compound that with Hurricane Katrina, with FEMA's response to Hurricane Katrina... That city was done for. Yeah. But all of these corporate forces really have conspired to make it so that the infrastructure needed to support a city can't get off the ground. Not only that, but there are child corporations of total multiversal war in Boston, in Chicago, in other major cities throughout the U.S., and across the world, they've been laying this foundation, not knowing where exactly a new city will be born, but covering all contingencies for decades. So on a lighter note, there are a couple things that I want to call out here. The first thing that I really love is Manhattan's observation of the love between Venitza and Branca. Venitza is one of my favorite characters in this book. Like, she is this unfailingly kind and sweet person who is at the same time not at all as naive as she appears. She's ruthless. But she is also just unfailingly loving. And I love when Manhattan looks at the two of them, he says, well, when we say that love is love of all kinds, it's just so powerful. 
So often when we talk about love in fiction, we talk about romantic love. And the love between two friends is just as important and just as real. And in especially the A-spec, but also just the LGBTQIA community, the concept of a queer platonic relationship where it's not a romantic relationship, but it is almost in that space between best friend and romantic partner, where it's someone who is your life partner in a friendship rather than being your life partner in a romance. And that feels kind of like what they've got. But also the concept of found family is so important to people in marginalized groups. Absolutely. And I think it's just a great reminder for everyone that the people that you have as your friends in your life, they can mean so much to you. And it can mean so very much just to have them in your life. You oftentimes will hear that blood is thicker than water, but that's only part of the actual expression is the blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb, which means that these people that you have bonded yourself to by choice are way more important to you than just the people that you happen to share genetic ancestry with. And that can be really liberating too, because a lot of times, you know, a lot of people come from families of blood or birth that don't treat them well, that have been harmful to them, or that they just don't feel close to. That disown them for being themselves. And you don't have to treat them with the total primacy that culture will say that you do. You can find your own people who really truly care for you and that you truly care for. And that's a family of choice. And I think that's really important. I think that that's very powerful. So with that, it's time for our thing of the week. It's your turn. What's it gonna be? All right, I'm gonna keep this short and sweet considering the length of recordings that we've done already, because we actually had to break this into two parts. Plastic Unicorn had to be called last week, and now we have a monster-sized thing for me to edit, and I'm not sure how long the episode will wind up being, but behind the scenes. So on our first episode of The City We Became, I said... Aw, darn it, you're making me change what my recommended thing is. And I'll tell you next week. And then the next time I had an opportunity, I didn't tell you all. <laughs> so the thing that I am recommending is the audiobook for The City We Became. Even if you don't normally enjoy audiobooks, this one is one of those that is almost like a radio drama. There are sound effects there are different voices. I believe it's all the same voice actor, but everyone is distinct. There's music, there's attitude. It feels like someone is putting on a performance specifically for you. And I love the book. I loved reading the book. But my goodness, just listening to it is a whole different experience on a whole different level. It's not like someone is reading you a bedtime story the way that a lot of audiobooks kind of feel. 
even some of my favorite audiobooks, including The Name of the Wind and The Wise Man's Fear, or nearly anything by Neil Gaiman, especially if he's reading it. But this is more theatrical, and I think they did a really good job. Yeah, it definitely has sort of the old school radio drama feel to it. I'm always here for that. And so now it's time for you to tell us the quote of the episode. All right, our quote of the week here is, Back before people with no taste started replacing every beautiful thing in the city with cheap bullshirt, it was one of the most distinctive architectural forms in the world, an art movement that was centered in New York. They're called Guastavino tiles, obsolete now, but back in the day they were designed to be fireproof and self-stabilizing. Perfect for a city that's half underground and full of flammable trash. And the reason I chose this is because it sent me down a bit of a rabbit hole online <laughs> to try and actually look up examples of Guastavino tiling. And it's pretty stunning. We'll be linking an article in here that will show some great examples, including the old abandoned subway station where they see the primary avatar. So that is legitimately stunning and really cool. Absolutely gorgeous. Oh my goodness, Will shared that article with me and I was just like drooling. Yeah. So then there's also like the Oyster Bar at Grand Central Station. There's also the Boston Public Library. So it's not just in New York, it's just centered in there. There's also government buildings as far west as Ohio. But it's this really grand feeling to everything. It has all these sort of classical arches combined with intricate tile work that makes all these really cool patterns. It's just a really distinctive look. It's dated in the sense that it's from a particular time in our history. But at the same time, I think it lends a sense of place to those areas that you'll find it. It does look timeless. It looks laborious. It looks intricate and like the time that was taken to do it is reflected in the final work. So historically, Guastavino tiles were originally popularized by a Spanish architect named Rafael Guastavino, who immigrated to the United States from Spain. He was an architect. He was born in Valencia in 1842. So he developed the system of building called cohesive construction, which featured interlocking terracotta tiles held together with mortar to form timbral vaults. It required a small amount of Portland cement, which was difficult to find outside of the U.S., though. So after moving to New York in 1881, he saw his business of affordable fireproof construction take off. A lot of people had the money for it, and Portland cement was readily available. So suddenly this thing that had been unattainable in Europe was affordable in the United States. So yeah, like it's just stunning. I think probably my favorite is the Edcock-Queensboro Bridge in New York. So under the bridge, there's basically a market that has sprung up and, you know, it's all enclosed on there. It's under these great big tiled vaults. It's really cool. It feels, just even from the photos, stunning. It's a uniquely American form of architecture. And it really makes things feel like what we think of as stereotypically New York. You know, it has that blend of old and new. It has 
a timeless quality to it, but it's at the same time a very distinctive quality to it. So yeah, take a look at this Architectural Digest article linked in the description. And yeah, if you have a chance, go look at some of these places. If you're in New York City, go check these out. Send us photos. We want to see it. So with that, I would like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thank you for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next time on Tales from the Waystone, the interlude we became, where we're going to go from chapters 14 through the end of the book. It's our last episode of the interlude. And then afterward, we're going right back to the wise man's fear. It'll be a lot of fun. And as always, we'd like to thank our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And N.K. Jemison for creating this wonderful world that we love exploring. Audio production and editing, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And writing and project management, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us and have the means to do so, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod. Also, share the podcast with other people and maybe share our Patreon link. We'd really appreciate it. Thank you. And as always, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! music plays yes thanks for the editing note you're welcome glad to help out anything to make editing easier for you <laughs> why yes you make editing so easy well i know that unintentionally i oftentimes confound things so this was just my little attempt to even the scales a bit okay you're unconvinced i can tell <laughs> A little bit.